and constraints you use, there would be millions if not billions of possible combinations. Superficially, selecting 1,000 models from such a large list of possibilities sounds very much like a data mining process. Data mining can be a very positive process. It is just that most people who do data mining are terrible at it. There are various things that you can do to make the data mining process work. It doesn't work on every data set. For some data sets, there is simply no edge available. Luckily for me, my intuition that there was an edge available in a non-trend-following, non-counter-trend type of model was correct. My intuition was that there should be other emergent patterns in the price data that are more complex than trend-following. What are some of the things you can do to avoid the pitfalls of data mining? The first thing you need to do is get some idea of how much the apparent edge is completely spurious. How do you do that? Let's say instead of training with the target variable, which is the price change over the subsequent 24 hours, I generate random numbers that have the same distribution characteristics. I know that any models that I find that score well training on this data are 100% curve-fitted because they are based on intentionally bogus data. The performance of the best model on the fictitious data provides a baseline. Then you need to come up with models that do much better than this baseline when you are training on the real data. It is only the performance difference between the models using real data and the baseline that is indicative of expected performance, not the full performance of the models in training. What are some of the worst errors people make in data mining? A lot of people think they are okay because they use in-sample data for training and out-of-sample data for testing. Then they sort the models based on how they performed on the in-sample data and choose the best ones to test on the out-of-sample data. The human tendency is to take the models that continue to do well in the out-of-sample data and choose those models for trading. That type of process simply turns the out-of-sample data into part of the training data because it cherry-picks the models that did best in the out-of-sample period. It is one of the most common errors people make and one of the reasons why data mining, as it is typically applied, yields terrible results. What should you be doing instead? You can look for patterns where, on average, all the models out of sample continue to do well. You know you are doing well if the average for the out of sample models is a significant percentage of the in sample score. Generally speaking, you are really getting somewhere if the out-of-sample results are more than 50% of the in-sample. QIM's business model would never have worked if SAS and IBM were building great predictive modeling software. Because if they did, lots of people could use this software for financial modeling. And lots of people do. But they have a very tough time modeling properly with the software, and they end up doing data mining of the bad kind. Why do you think you as a single individual have been able to come up with data mining procedures that are much more effective in financial markets than the software produced by these large corporations with tons of PhDs? Because the commercial softwares focus more on the problem of allowing users to handle large quantities of data than on providing users with very strict protocols to make sure they don't curve fit the data. People are so excited about building and using software that allows them to handle so much more data than ever before that they are missing the point of doing the process properly. Not only does the software fail to guide the user in doing data mining correctly, 
It actually leads users in the wrong direction because it allows them to generate bogus evidence to support their pet theories. Do you give the same weight to data from the 1980s as data from the 2000s? Sometimes we give a little more weight to more recent data, but it is amazing how valuable older data still is. The stationarity of the patterns we have uncovered is amazing to me, as I would have expected predictive patterns in markets to change more over the longer term. Is the implication then that models don't get dropped even if they perform poorly? It takes a tremendous amount of deterioration to drop a model. We don't react to the short-term results of a model because the current year performance of any single model is simply not at all predictive of the next year's performance. What is predictive is how the model performed over the entire 31 years. The extra 3% of data provided by the most recent year doesn't make much difference in how a model has performed over the entire training period. Your assets under management in the futures program alone have been as high as $5 billion. Is capacity a problem? Do you have to make changes to accommodate larger assets under management? One of the changes we have made from the early years, which has greatly expanded capacity, is to execute trades throughout the trading session as opposed to only on the opening. Another change that has increased our capacity is that we have shifted the allocation process to give greater weight to more liquid markets. We trade a larger percentage in stock indexes and interest rates than we used to, and a smaller percentage in non-financial futures contracts. Although this change has reduced our diversification, we were quite willing to make it because there is a strong pattern for our edge to be greater in more liquid markets. So besides increasing capacity, the shift to allocating a greater percentage to more liquid markets has also improved performance. Are you then sizing your positions in each market based on relative liquidity? We started shifting our weightings to the more liquid markets in 2006, and about six months ago we switched our risk weightings to be exclusively based on liquidity, with the one exception being the S&P, which has very substantial excess capacity. The other important point that needs to be made about capacity is that it is not static. It moves around a lot with changes in volume and volatility in the underlying markets. We estimate our current capacity at $6 billion to $9 billion. But we always add the caveat that if volatilities decline by 50% on average across the markets, our capacity would be reduced by a similar amount. How do you control risk? The core of the risk management is evaluating the risk of each market based on an exponentially weighted moving average of the daily dollar range per contract. This risk management metric has kept our volatility relatively stable near the target level, even through periods of wide gyrations in the markets. One of the things I'm particularly proud of in terms of risk management is that through the chaos of 2008 and 2009, our volatility remained very near our target level of 12% annualized. I assume, then, that you were trading a much smaller number of contracts in each market per million dollars in 2008 than you normally do. Absolutely. As volatility increased, the number of contracts we were trading dropped precipitously. What other risk management procedures do you use besides adjusting the trading size for changes and the volatility of the underlying markets? The volatility adjustment has worked extremely well for the entire history of the program. The part of our risk management process that has worked poorly during the past two years is our leverage reduction policy.
In its initial formulation, whenever there was an intramonth drawdown of 6% from a monthly equity peak, we cut our exposure to 75% of normal. On an 8% drawdown, the exposure was cut to 50%, and on a 10% drawdown, it was cut to 25%. Then there were analogous rules for increasing exposure back up as the drawdown was reduced. From 2003 through 2009, the leverage reduction rule very slightly lowered our return slash risk, but it made it much easier to sleep because whenever we were in significant drawdown, our trading size would be smaller. However, in 2010 and 2011, our leverage reduction policy really hurt us badly because the periods when our models were really on fire occurred when our exposure was lowest. To borrow a term from trend following, we were whipsawed by our own risk overlay. That is the dilemma, isn't it? If you believe that mean reversion applies to the performance of trading systems, then if a system doesn't work well for a period of time, there is probably a greater than normal probability that it will do well in the subsequent period. Yet, if you are reducing your risk after a drawdown, that would be the exact time when you would have your smallest exposure. On the other hand, there is the argument that by reducing exposure on drawdowns, you reduce the risk of ruin. Ironically, I think that both perspectives are true. Reducing exposure after losses will mitigate the chances of a catastrophic loss, but it will do so at the cost of adversely impacting performance. What misconceptions do people have about markets? The worst misconception is about what should constitute the free market. In the name of free markets, the over-the-counter, OTC, market continues to grow without bounds as a massive profit center for Wall Street banks. Allowing the OTC markets to be unregulated and opaque makes as much sense as leaving 58-year-olds unsupervised for a month. The OTC markets are very often used to take advantage of clients who are sophisticated in the legal definition, but are naive in practice. The OTC markets have been built to maximize asymmetries of information and are an example of how markets should not operate. Markets should be fair and transparent, as the futures and equity markets have mostly evolved to be. What are the worst mistakes the public makes in markets? Overtrading and listening to tips. Do losing periods cause any emotional strain? How do you handle it? Yes, periods of poor performance are difficult. I generally handle it by focusing very hard on improving the trading system. How would you summarize the trading rules you live by? Look where others don't. Adjust position sizes to overall risk to target a particular volatility. Pay careful attention to transaction costs. Any final words? When I was in my teens, my highly insightful father was somehow able to instill in me the discipline of objectively evaluating your own progress. That lesson, more than anything else, has been critical to my success. Woodruff's views, confirmed by his long-term success, provide four important insights about trading systems. One. It is possible to find systems that are neither trend-following nor counter-trend that work better than either of those more common approaches. Judging by the comparison of Woodruff's return-slash-risk to the return-slash-risk of the universe of systematic traders. 2. It is possible to apply data mining techniques to search huge quantities of data to find useful patterns without necessarily falling victim to curve-fitting. Although, as an important caveat, most people trying to do so will misuse the approach and end up finding patterns that worked very well in the past but fail in actual trading. 3. 
old price data, e.g. data 30 years old, can be nearly as meaningful as recent data. 4. Systems that work well across many markets are more likely to continue to work in actual trading than systems that do well in specific markets. The lesson is, design systems that work broadly rather than market-specific systems. Woodruff's core risk management technique, adjusting position sizes in line with changing overall volatility, has applicability to a wide range of traders, even those who don't use a systematic approach. As markets become more volatile, Woodruff will trade a smaller number of contracts for the same asset size. Woodruff uses the average dollar range and contract value for each market traded as the metric for adjusting portfolio exposure. Using this approach, Woodruff has been able to maintain his portfolio volatility close to the desired target level, despite widely fluctuating volatility over the past 20 years. As I have found to be true of virtually all successful traders, Woodruff developed a methodology that suited his personality. He felt a deep inner need to develop an approach that was different from what anyone else was doing, and that is what he did. He was also able to recognize from very early on when a methodology didn't suit him. After setting up a real-time quote system to manually day-trade the markets, he abandoned the process after only three days as he quickly realized, this isn't me. This just doesn't work for me. Part 2. Multi-Strategy Chapter 6. Edward Thorpe, The Innovator Can the markets be beat? Not unless you are lucky, according to proponents of the efficient market hypothesis, EMH, which assumes that the markets discount all known information and immediately reflect all new information. What about traders who have achieved exceptional track records, including some of those profiled in this book? EMH believers have a ready response, which is a variant of the popular Shakespearean monkey argument, that is, if you have enough monkeys randomly striking keyboard keys, they have recently traded in their typewriters for PCs, one of them will eventually type Hamlet. By analogy, the implication is that if you have enough traders, some of them will do exceptionally well simply by chance. While the Shakespearean monkey argument is perfectly valid, the question that is always left unaddressed is, how many monkeys would you need to get a randomly generated copy of Hamlet? Answer, a lot of monkeys. Unimaginably more monkeys than could be squeezed into the visible universe. The relevant question then is, if trading results are based on chance, how many traders would you need to get one or more with a track record as good as one of the best actually achieved? If EMH is correct, then all trading results are a matter of chance. Thorpe's track record provides a useful proxy to answer this question. Thorpe's original fund, Princeton Newport Partners, ran for 19 years, November 1969 to December 1988, and had an average annualized compounded gross return of 19.1%, 15.1% after fees. It is not return, but rather the extraordinary consistency of return that sets Thorpe apart. Princeton Newport Partners compiled a track record of 227 winning months and only three losing months, all under 1%, an extraordinary 98.7% winning percentage. To calculate the probability of this achievement if markets were efficient, we make the simplifying assumption that the average win and average loss were equal. This is a very conservative assumption since, in fact, Thorpe's average win was significantly higher, 
which implies that the probability of Thorpe achieving his win percentage by chance will be even lower than the estimate we derive. Given the assumption that the average win and loss are about equal, the probability of any single trader achieving 227 winning months or better out of 230 is equivalent to the probability of getting 227 or more heads in 230 coin tosses, which is approximately equal to an infinitesimally small 1 out of 10 to the 63rd power. Even if we assume 1 billion traders, which is a deliberate exaggeration, the odds of getting at least one track record equivalent or better than Thorpe's would still be less than 1 out of 10 to the 62nd power. To put this probability in context, the odds of randomly selecting a specific atom in the Earth would be about a trillion times better. There are two ways of looking at these results. 1. Boy, Thorpe was unbelievably lucky. 2. The efficient market hypothesis is wrong. Track records such as Thorpe's prove conclusively that it is possible to beat the market and that the large group of economists who insist otherwise are choosing to believe theory over evidence. The contention that it is possible to beat the markets, however, does not say anything about the difficulty of the task. In fact, it is the difficulty in beating the market, the vast majority of market participants fail to do so, that helps create the illusion that markets are efficient. Thorpe's career encompasses an extraordinary number of first achievements. He co-developed, along with Claude Shannon, the first wearable computer that could be used to win at roulette. He developed the first blackjack betting strategy that provided a positive edge to the player, which he divulged in his global bestseller, Beat the Dealer. The book changed the way casinos operate. Thorpe, along with Sheen Kalsuf, developed the first known systematic approach to trading warrants and other convertible securities e.g. options, convertible bonds, convertible preferred stocks, by hedging them with offsetting stock positions, an approach they detailed in their book, Beat the Market. He was the first to formulate an option pricing model that was equivalent to the Black-Scholes model. Thorpe had actually used an equivalent form of the formula to very profitably trade warrants and options for years before the publication of the Black-Scholes model. He was the founder of First Market Neutral Fund. He established the first successful quant hedge fund. He was the first to implement convertible arbitrage. He was the first to implement statistical arbitrage. He was likely the first person to uncover that Bernie Madoff was a fraud. He developed conclusive evidence of the fraud many years before Harry Markopoulos did. Thorpe, a Ph.D. mathematician and near-Ph.D. physicist, came to the markets via gambling, but not gambling in the conventional sense. Normally, casino games of chance have a negative edge for the player, and the longer one plays, the greater the chance of financial ruin. This type of gambling is the antithesis of what Thorpe was interested in. Thorpe was, in fact, extremely risk-averse, a byproduct of his having grown up during the Depression. Thorpe's goal was to remove the gambling from gambling. He sought to devise strategies that would place the edge in casino games in his favor, a task that had been assumed to be impossible. Amazingly, he was successful in devising strategies to gain a significant edge in multiple casino games, including roulette, blackjack, baccarat, and wheel of fortune. Ironically, devising the strategies to win at what were always assumed to be unbeatable games proved to be easier than the execution. Winning from casinos presents practical problems. Winning players get noticed. 
and casinos have low tolerance for players who win by any means other than pure chance. Thorpe thought that the markets might provide a better alternative to apply his research. The markets were, after all, the largest game, and no one could kick him out if he figured out a consistent way to win. So he turned his research focus on the stock market. This research led to his discovery that warrants, long-term options, were mispriced. In working on the problem of how to price warrants and options, Thorpe was introduced to Sheen Kassif, who was also a professor at the University of California at Irvine in economics, and who was working on the same project. Thorpe and Kassif collaborated for a while, and in 1967, they co-authored their findings in Beat the Market. As a continuation of this work, Thorpe eventually developed a version of what would later become the famous Black-Scholes option pricing model. This formula was considerably more powerful than the research published in Beat the Market, and Thorpe kept the formula to himself. After several years of very successfully trading his own money and managing money for a number of colleagues, in 1969, Thorpe partnered with an East Coast broker, James Reagan, to launch the first quant hedge fund, also the first market neutral fund, Princeton Newport Partners. Princeton Newport Partners, PNP, as implied by its name, was structured as a two-office operation. Thorpe headed up the research, programming, and trade generation in Newport Beach, while his partner, James Regan, ran the order execution, business administration, compliance, and marketing from the Princeton office. Thorpe had divided the firm so he could focus on doing what he loved, research, and rid himself of the business side obligations. The firm's divided structure worked extremely well for 19 years, but also led to its demise. In December 1987, 50 federal agents raided the Princeton office to gather files and tapes as evidence of securities violations. United States Attorney Rudolph Giuliani eventually brought racketeering charges against PNP, the first time the RICO statute had been invoked against a securities firm. In August 1988, Regan and four other members of the Princeton office were indicted on 64 counts. The charges essentially boiled down to two items, stock parking, leaving shares with another party to conceal true ownership, and stock manipulation related to a Drexel Securities offering. Although the PNP employees were originally convicted, their convictions were subsequently overturned, and none served any time in jail. Journalists covering the case almost universally assumed that Giuliani's draconian prosecution, e.g. invoking the RICO statute, which was widely seen as out of proportion relative to the charges, was really intended to compel Regan and the other PNP employees to provide testimony against Michael Milken and Drexel. Thorpe was completely unaware of the transgressions of the Princeton office and only found out that there was a problem at the time of the raid itself. The Princeton office defendants were not forthcoming with information, and Thorpe learned more about the case from the press than from his partner. Thorpe was never charged, or for that matter even interviewed. However, his firm had been irreparably damaged. A few months after the indictments, Thorpe decided to close down PNP. Delegating the transaction and business side of his firm had been a major convenience, but it allowed for actions to occur that destroyed his hedge fund, despite having arguably the single best return-slash-risk track record in the industry. Following the closure of PNP, Thorpe maintained the Newport office from where he continued to trade his own account. During 1990 to 1992, he focused primarily on trading Japanese warrants, which he found to be broadly mispriced. 
He eventually was forced to abandon this strategy when the dealers dramatically widened their bid-ask spreads, wiping out about half the potential profit on each trade. Thorpe had successfully traded a statistical arbitrage strategy since the mid-1980s. In 1992, he was asked to run the strategy for a large institutional client. Two years later, he started his second hedge fund, Ridgeline Partners, to open the statistical arbitrage strategy to other investors. Ridgeline traded very actively, averaging about 6 million shares per day and accounting for about half percent of total NYSE volume. Thorpe ran the strategy over 10 years. He averaged a 21% average annual compounded return with only a 7% annualized volatility, another remarkable track record. After closing down Ridgeline in 2002, for reasons discussed in the interview, Thorpe devoted his time to managing his allocations to other hedge funds. He also developed a trend-following system, which he traded from late 2007 until early 2010. I interviewed Thorpe over a two-day period in his large, light-filled Newport Beach office, which had a 180-degree view with the Pacific Ocean to the west and the surrounding towns to the north. Thorpe is 78, but his physical vigor and mental sharpness belie his age. A fitness enthusiast all his life, he continues a routine that includes running, walking, and working out with a physical trainer twice a week. His memory was remarkably precise, as he often cited not only the year of many past events, but the specific month as well. Thorpe seemed proud of his many achievements, but in a manner of satisfaction with a life well-lived and without a trace of arrogance. When you were growing up, did you have any idea where you were headed in life? No. My father was very hostile to business. We suffered through the Great Depression. He was a security guard because that was the only work he could find. He was a soldier in World War I. He enlisted in time to be part of the American Expeditionary Force. He suffered multiple shrapnel wounds. Although he got a Purple Heart, Silver Star, and Bronze Star, he came back with a great hostility towards war based on what he had seen. A lot of my father's attitude rubbed off on me, including the pain and suffering of the Depression and an aversion to war, unless it is what you call a necessary war. Was your father an educated man? He was. He had about a year and a half of college, but unfortunately didn't have the money to continue. He was really smart, though. He had a natural math ability. So did my mother, strangely enough. He also was a very good rider. It didn't amount to much, but he won a riding contest in Chicago and got a typewriter in 1934. I wrote an elementary probability book on the same typewriter in 1965. I got interested in science when I was eight or nine. I went to an academically deficient high school. I think we were ranked 31 out of 32 in the L.A. school system so I basically taught myself. I set up a laboratory behind the garage in a laundry room that I shared with my mother. I bought chemicals with the money I made delivering newspapers at 2 a.m. I was interested in physics and chemistry, astronomy and electronics, and I had a grand time learning all these things. My intention was to go to college to become an academic scientist, most likely a chemist. I was averse to business because I bought into my father's point of view that it was full of thieves who didn't have the best interest of the world in mind. 
and were after whatever they could get. Do you believe that the depression experience affected the way you later viewed markets and risk? We had to be very careful with any possessions we had, because it was all hard to come by. We had very little money and were just barely getting along, so nothing was wasted, everything was conserved. It was the same with my science experiments. I reused old parts over and over again in multifarious ways. As far as risk goes, it made me think very carefully about planning for the future and trying to make sure that I had the downside covered so I wouldn't be caught in some awful economic circumstance where I wouldn't have enough to get by on. It didn't so much worry me as it was something that I thought about. We got used to having very little money, but enough by being very careful and working hard. I believe that if you worked hard, good things would come. I expected to be a science professor in a university, but there were some things that happened along the way that may have been harbingers of my future path. For instance, when I was eight, there were WPA workers out in front of the house. This was in the 1930s. It was a very hot summer day. They were perspiring heavily and were obviously very thirsty. I went to the store and bought a pack of Kool-Aid for a nickel, made six glasses out of it, and sold it to them for a penny apiece. A penny actually had considerable value in those days. In the winter, I shoveled snow. At first, I charged a nickel, but I found that there was so much demand that I raised the price to a dime and then to 15 cents. The first year, when I was eight, I made several dollars. But the next year, the other kids caught on and the market changed. A classic example of no barriers to entry. Another thing happened that had a hint of the future. I had a cousin who was not a totally scrupulous guy and who discovered that you could jiggle the slot machines that were located in gas stations and make them pay out more than they should. This was a fairly astonishing fact that you could go around jiggling machines and get a lot of extra nickels out of them. I didn't make a career out of it, but I just noted that there was a gambling situation where you could extract extra money. When I was in high school, I had a very talented English teacher who was influential in teaching me about writing. He really cared about the kids. I wouldn't say it was totally uncommon, but it certainly wasn't the norm. He had gone to Las Vegas on a trip. Afterward, I was over at his house for dinner, and he mentioned that it was impossible to beat those guys. That started me thinking about roulette. The ball seemed like a planet. I thought it might be possible to beat roulette by measuring the position and velocity of the ball and the rotor. How old were you then? I was 15. So even at that age, you apparently knew Newtonian physics. When I was 16, they had a Southern California physics contest in which the best physics students competed. All the other students were 17 or 18 years old, but I placed first by a very wide margin. You were self-taught in physics? I taught myself in my own way. I was always an out-of-the-box thinker. I got hold of a college physics textbook and got through about two-thirds of it by the time of the physics contest, but that was apparently enough. 
I graduated when I was 16 and was able to attend college through a combination of scholarships and savings from my newspaper route. I graduated with a degree in physics from UCLA, and then I received a master's in physics. I had almost completed all the requirements for a Ph.D. I had done all the coursework and written exams and orals and was working on the last part of my thesis and ran into some math issues. It was a thesis on quantum mechanics. I realized I needed to take some more math courses. UCLA physics at the time was deficient in their math requirements. I basically had only the first two years of college math, plus a few advanced math courses, but nothing close to what a math major would take. I had to jump into the graduate courses in math to get up to speed on the math I needed to finish the calculations in my thesis. Once I did that, I realized that considering the amount of math I had to learn, I could get out of math faster than I could get out of physics. So I ended up getting my Ph.D. in math. So you were literally almost a double Ph.D. in math and physics. Exactly. You never finished your thesis to get a Ph.D. in physics? No, it wasn't worth my time anymore, although it wouldn't have taken much more time to get it. Did you like math better than physics? It was kind of odd. When I was in physics, the way they did things didn't make logical sense to me. They would discuss models of things, but they wouldn't explain the assumptions carefully. I liked the logic of math a lot better. Once I learned the logic of math, I could come back to physics and see quite clearly the assumptions they were making and why they were making them. As a math professor, how did you get involved in developing blackjack betting systems? In December 1958, when I was teaching at UCLA for one year before going on to teach at MIT, my wife and I were going to Las Vegas for a low-cost vacation. I knew better than to gamble because the odds are against you. One of the professors in the math department who heard I was going to Las Vegas told me, there is a new article in the Journal of the American Statistical Association that tells you how to play at almost even in blackjack. I thought that if I could play at almost even, I could have some fun without it costing me much. Of course, I didn't think through all the way because although it might not cost much on average, my experience was not going to be average. It was going to be some random fluctuation around the expected modest negative edge, which could be favorable or unfavorable. I read this article and it said that I could play with a house edge of only 0.62%, which was far better than any other game in Vegas. I made a blackjack strategy card, and when I got to the tables, I sat down with ten silver dollars and began to play. People at the table were getting clobbered because the dealer had a really good run of luck. My little strategy card, which the other players had laughed at when I first sat down, was doing pretty well. I was holding my own. What was the strategy that the article had recommended? It was what is now known as the basic strategy in blackjack. After about 20 minutes, I got a hand with an ace and a seven, a soft 18, and the dealer had a nine showing. The strategy said hit. The other players groaned when I did, thinking I was a fool. The next card was a four, so I had 12. The other players thought I had gotten just what I deserved. 
I then got a string of aces and twos, which gave me six cards with a total of sixteen. The strategy said hit again, and I got a five, which gave me a seven-card twenty-one. Now the other players got really excited. They thought that the strategy card was magical rather than stupid. I played for a while longer and eventually ended up losing eight of my ten dollars. When I went back to UCLA, I reread the article and I realized that there was a potential for beating the game by keeping track of the cards played. I guess the article assumed no knowledge of the cards played, with all outcomes equally likely on every deal? Exactly, the article assumed a full-deck strategy all the time. On average, that is the right assumption, but you have to have more information, like what cards have been played, and then you can improve on those odds. I was convinced that it was very likely that there would be significant swings in the edge back and forth. The question was how to identify those swings. I wrote the authors of the Blackjack article, and they sent me all their lab manuals with the calculations. I spent about five or six weeks mastering all the details of what they had done. My plan was to repeat their calculations with some cards removed from the deck. For example, take out the twos, take out the threes, and so on. I was using a desk calculator and making very slow progress. I decided to estimate how long my calculations would take. I found that if I did everything I wanted to do, it would take me several thousand years. By that time, I had just taken a job at MIT. At the time, MIT had an IBM 704 computer, which was then the best available commercial computer. What year was this? 1959? Wow, that is very early. I remember being a senior in college 11 years later and trying to run an econometric model on the IBM 360. You would type the program on a stack of punch cards, and if there was one misplaced comma, the program would bomb, and you would have to submit the program all over again. That was my experience as well. The IBM 704 was new and rare at the time, and it served 30 New England universities. As a faculty member, I was able to reserve some time on it. I did not know much about programming, but I ended up developing things that programmers already knew about, such as subroutines. I modularized the program and tested blocks separately to make sure they ran and got the results I thought they should get. Then I put the blocks together. I would take a block in for testing. The block might be something like calculating doubling down expectations. Similar to your experience, two and three days later, my cards would come back with a rubber band and a piece of paper around them, indicating the grammatical mistakes I had made. Initially, I was bogged down with grammatical errors, but then I got much more accurate in doing it, and things began to run much more smoothly. By 1960, I started getting results back, and they were really exciting. When I ran the combination of four aces out, the edge went to negative 2.5%. That result implied that if there were four extra aces in the deck, the odds would go to plus 2.5%. You might ask, how can you have four extra aces? Of course you can't, but if you are down to a half a deck and none of the aces are out, the odds are the same as a full deck with eight aces. Did you calculate the odds by varying one card at a time and holding everything else constant? Yes, that tied into the image I had when I read the original paper back in UCLA. You can picture the blackjack probability problem as a ten-dimensional space, with a fraction of each card varying along a single axis. 
The fraction of each card is one-thirteenth, except for the cards with a ten value, which pool and have a combined fraction of four-thirteenths. You can think of any deck, that is any combination of cards, as being a point in that ten-dimensional space. The coordinates of each point are determined by the fraction of each card value remaining in the deck. What was the strategy you eventually developed? When I first wrote a paper on this for the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, I described a five strategy, but that was because it was simple and everyone would get it. But it wasn't the strategy I planned to use or did use. In the five strategy, if all the fives are out, you have a 3.3% edge. A simple application would be to bet with the basic strategy 90% of the time and make really big bets 10% of the time when all the fives are out. That was a good strategy in the sense that no one expected this feature of the game. Everyone thought that the aces and tens were the important thing. The problem with the strategy was that decks with all the fives out occurred about only 10% of the time. The next strategy I developed was based on tens. My reasoning was that since there are a lot of tens in the deck, a tens-based strategy would provide considerably more fluctuation in the odds. Is the idea that even though the 5 strategy provides a higher probability bet, the 10 strategy provides far more opportunities? Exactly. Fives were actually the card that had the most influence. Aces were next, and then 10s and 6s. Did you have trouble getting your paper published, given the gambling subject matter? Here's how I got it published. I knew I had to get into print fast because there were unscrupulous people around who would claim they had discovered the same information. I had been through several rounds in my career where people had stolen things that I had written in the math world and claimed it was theirs. I decided I wanted to get quick publication, and I wanted to get it into a prestigious journal. The best way to do that was get it published in the National Academy of Sciences, but you had to find a member who would submit the paper for you or else they wouldn't take it. I researched the Cambridge area where I was located and found that there were two members. One member was an algebraist at Harvard who wouldn't have any idea what I was talking about and probably wouldn't have cared if he did. The other member was Claude Shannon at MIT. Shannon was a joint professor of mathematics and engineering and one of only two distinguished professors at MIT. I went to his secretary and I asked if I could get an appointment. She said, he might see you for five minutes, but he doesn't talk to people if he's not interested, so don't expect more than a very brief interview. Did you know anything about his reputation when you went to see him? No, I didn't know anything other than he was a member of the National Academy of Sciences and a distinguished professor at MIT. I went over to Shannon's office on a gloomy winter afternoon, just after lunch, and found this elfish-looking man, about five foot seven, salt-and-pepper hair, very trim, with a twinkle in his eye and very ready intelligence. I told him what it was I wanted. He read my abstract, and he said, Well, instead of calling it a winning strategy for blackjack, we better call it a favorable strategy for 21, which sounds a little more academic and dignified. He cross-examined me for about 10 or 15 minutes and said, It looks like you have found all the really big ideas here. He indicated that we needed to condense the paper, which is why many of the discoveries that were in my book were not in the paper. They were edited out for size. Then Shannon asked, What else are you working on? 
At this point, I need to go back to 1955 and pick up the roulette story. I had just gotten my master's in physics, and I was sitting in the dining room of the University Cooperative Housing Association, UCHA, an independent low-cost student living group near the UCLA campus where I resided. People would gather there to take study breaks and to argue about everything. Someone brought up roulette and was explaining why you couldn't possibly win. I said, I don't think that is true. I made my case. Some of the people were interested in working on it. I started a little group which faded away fairly rapidly, but I pursued it on my own. A fellow I was tutoring bought me a half-size roulette wheel in appreciation for my help. He knew I wanted one. And I bought a stopwatch that ticked in hundreds of a second, which was a fairly large expenditure for me. I did field experiments setting up a movie camera on a tripod and using the stopwatch to measure time. I did observations to determine how repeatable the ball motion was. If it wasn't repeatable, it would mean there was too much randomness for the process to work. I plotted charts of where the ball was at various points in time. The results looked pretty good. The process did seem repeatable. I also created an analog experiment by letting a roulette ball slide down an inclined track across the floor. The idea was I could translate the rotary motion of the wheel into a linear equivalent. I could take the potential energy at the height at which I launched the ball as the amount of kinetic energy the ball was going to get when it rolled down. I wanted to see if the same amount of potential energy converted to kinetic energy would send the ball to approximately the same place on the floor each time. It did. It wasn't proof, but it told me that I couldn't rule out the possibility that predicting roulette might work. One night, my wife had invited my in-laws over to dinner, and I was so engrossed in my experiments that I lost track of what was going on around me. They wondered where I was because I didn't show up at the dinner table. They came looking for me and found me rolling balls down the track. I'm sure that, at that moment, they must have thought their daughter had made a very serious mistake. Or that you had lost your marbles. How does this tie back to Shannon? When Shannon asked what else I was working on, I started telling him about my roulette experiments. Shannon was the ultimate gadgeteer. He got very excited because this idea was right up his alley. The few minutes I had been allocated stretched into several hours. We decided to continue the project together. We ordered a reconditioned wheel from Vegas. I remember it cost $1,500. There was great excitement when it arrived at Shannon's house in a huge packing case. We set it up in Shannon's basement on a slate pool table, which was rock solid. We got strobe equipment from MIT so that when you spun the ball, you could flash the strobe, which would light up briefly, making the ball look stationary. The effect was like a strobe light in a disco. We also had a large clock with a second hand that made one revolution per second, with the dial divided into hundreds of a second. We were able to hit the strobe and stop the clock at the same time so that we could see where the ball was at an exact time. This setup allowed us to make a lot of measurements. After several months of work, we determined that we could get a huge 44% edge in roulette by predicting the most likely octant in which the ball would land. So we built the first wearable computer, which is now in the MIT Museum. How big was it? 
It was about the size of a pack of cigarettes. The plan was the same one I had formulated sitting around the MIT co-op dining room one Sunday afternoon. One person would wear the computer and do timing with the switches in the toes of his shoe. The other person would wear a radio receiver and make the bets. I understand conceptually that Newtonian physics could be applied to predict a most probable landing area for the ball and roulette. But what I've never understood is how you could physically time a moving ball's location accurately enough for a computer to yield a usable answer. That's a good question. The way it worked was we would use the hotel insignia on the outside stationary border of the wheel as a reference point, and each time the double zero passed this point, we would hit the switch to mark that time. But how could you time that accurately enough? That is where the strobe came in. We practiced in Shannon's basement with very subdued light, and the strobe would light up to show us where the ball actually was compared to where we thought it was. It took some training. We learned to anticipate just the right amount. With practice, we were able to get the standard error to within the ball's diameter. I assume you have to wait for the ball to spin around a few times so that the velocity slows before you make your estimate. Yes, you basically want the ball to be going as slowly as possible when you place your bet, because the nearer you time it to the end, the more accurate your prediction. But you have two moving objects, the wheel and the ball. You mentioned the wheel, but what about the ball? The way it worked was that you would hit the toe switch when the double zero passed the mark, and you would hit the switch again the next time it passed the mark. So now the computer knows how fast the rotor is going. The ball is spun after the rotor measurements. Oh, I see, there is no need for simultaneous measurements. First you measure the speed of the wheel, and then you measure the speed of the ball, each time taking two points. Exactly, there are four clicks. The first two tell you the velocity of the rotor, and the second two tell you the velocity of the ball. My idea was for the computer signal to be the tones in the octave, each tone corresponding to an octant of the wheel. Shannon came up with the beautiful idea to design the program so that it cycled through the tones, providing the best estimate at each moment. When you clicked the fourth time, the tones would stop. The last tone you heard was the octant to bet on. What was nice about that approach was that there was no compute time. The computer was continuously calculating the best estimate, and when you clicked on the last time, the computation was over. So as time is going by, the estimate is constantly changing. Exactly, each tone tells you what the current estimation is. The program was designed to give you the estimate, assuming the last click occurred at the exact moment. Once we heard the last tone, we would bet on all five numbers in that octant. When did you actually apply your roulette betting system in a casino? Shannon and I and our wives went on a trip to Vegas in August 1961. We had to wire ourselves up. Who wore the computer and who wore the radio receiver? Shannon was better at estimating the ball position than I was, so he was the timer and wore the computer. He stood next to the wheel and wrote down numbers just like any silly system player. As a diversion. Exactly. The casinos won't bother you if you're doing that. I wore the receiver and sat at the far end of the table where I couldn't even see the wheel. So you heard the tones? Yes, I heard the tones. I had a little speaker. 
A loud timer tone goes off on Thorpe's desk. I swear I am not making the timing of this up. Oops, that's the lunch warning. Thorpe had made lunch reservations and set the timer as a reminder. The speaker was small enough to push into your ear canal. Initially, we had tried copper wires that were as thin as hairs, but they had almost no tensile strength and would break far too easily. We found steel wires that we used, which had had a moderate amount of tensile strength, but still not enough, and they also broke periodically. Inevitably, one of the wires would break, and then we would have to leave the roulette table and do a lot of soldering. How many bets could you get off before the wires broke? About twelve to fifteen, and then something would go wrong. How would Shannon know that something was wrong? I would just get up and leave the table. One time I was sitting next to the wheel, and there was a lady sitting next to me. Suddenly she looked at me, and her eyes popped wide open. She was just horror-stricken. I knew something was wrong, so I left immediately and went to the men's room. There was a big black thing which looked like an insect coming out of my ear. It was the speaker with wires. The wires were painted with flesh-colored nail polish so they couldn't be seen. How did that week turn out? We turned single dimes into piles of dimes. With a 44% edge, why did you use such a conservative bet size? We wanted to prove that our strategy worked. Also, we were having a lot of trouble with the equipment. What did your actual edge turn out to be? It seemed to be consistent with our calculation. Did you do follow-up trips where you wagered more meaningful amounts? No, and there were multiple reasons why I didn't. The first, Blackjack was rolling full blast and occupying a good chunk of my time. Second, not long afterward, I accepted a position at New Mexico State University, which made continued collaboration with Shannon difficult. Third, I questioned whether I wanted to pursue a venture where I had to disguise myself. Fourth, everyone else was really scared. They were afraid of casino violence. Yes, I would imagine. It was one of the questions I was going to ask you about. You say everyone else. What about yourself? For some reason, I was never scared. Why? I just don't scare. I am aware, and I avoid taking foolish risks. When I was playing blackjack in Las Vegas, I always made sure I was around people and lights. But that wouldn't have helped if the casino caught you. That's true. If they caught you, they would drag you into the back room and beat you. But at this point, I felt I had a shield of publicity from my blackjack exposure in the press. If they had done anything to me, I could really have made them look bad. I think they probably knew that. Many years later, I learned that they did discuss whether to do me in. In 1964, there was a huge meeting of the Nevada Resort Hotel Association in Las Vegas after Life magazine published an article titled The Professor Who Breaks the Bank, which created a lot of publicity for blackjack betting systems. The article caused a huge uproar among the casino owners, and they had a meeting to discuss what to do about it. Thirty years later, a fellow by the name of Vic Vickery, who was at the meeting, wrote an article about it. Apparently, they discussed various alternatives, including getting rid of me and breaking knees. Fortunately for me, they settled on the right option, which was changing the rules. But at that point, the ideas were already out there, so taking care of you wouldn't have done anything for them anyway.
it would have been useless, and they realized that. Some years ago, I read a book called Eudaimonic Pi about a group of physics students who also developed a shoe computer using Newtonian physics to predict the most likely outcome for roulette spins. Was there any connection between you and them? Here's the connection. In the second edition of Beat the Dealer, I mentioned there was a way to win at roulette. In 1969, I got a call from a mathematician named Ralph Abraham inquiring about a roulette system. At that time, I thought that I would never use it myself again, so I might as well let the information out. Within a few years, some physics graduate students did the same thing. They had the next generation of electronics and arrived at the same 44% edge. Let's go back to Blackjack. Was your article published in a scientific journal? It was published in 1961, The Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. What was the response? There wasn't so much a response to that article as there was to a talk I gave at the same time at the annual meeting of the American Mathematical Society. I submitted an abstract of the talk called Fortune's Formula, a winning strategy for blackjack. The abstract committee reviewed my proposal, and unbeknownst to me at the time, they were going to reject it as the work of another crank. They get a lot of submissions from people purporting to prove the mathematically impossible, such as proofs for trisecting an angle with a compass and a straight edge alone, or gambling systems for games that are impossible to beat. Did they read your paper? <laughs> 